You're listening to the Curious About Cannabis podcast. It's a plant that goes by many names. Some call it hemp, some call it marijuana. You can call it what you will, it's cannabis, and it's got a lot of people curious. But what do you really know about the cannabis plant and how it makes its way from the field all the way to your grinder? In this episode, we're gonna take things back to the roots as we explore the science of the cannabis plant's life cycle. So get ready to get down and dirty as we meet the cannabis plant. is dedicated to providing reliable cannabis science education to anyone curious enough to learn. To get access to free courses and other educational resources, visit learn.cacpodcast.com and become a Curious About Cannabis member for free. The Curious About Cannabis book provides an incredible crash course in cannabis science through over 500 pages of content filled with photos, activities, science experiments, games, and more to help guide you through your personalized cannabis education journey. This book has become a trusted textbook in colleges and universities across North America and is absolutely perfect for serious learners as well as cannabis educators, bud tenders, clinicians, patients, and caregivers. And special thanks to the many individuals, companies, and organizations that have helped Curious About Cannabis meet our mission of becoming the number one trusted source of cannabis science education on the planet. This includes organizations like Credo Science with Ethan Russo, The Conigma, Treadwell Farms, The Spellman Report with Kevin Spellman, The Workshop, Green Earth Medicinals, CBD National, Magnolia Botanicals, and more. Visit cacpodcast.com slash sponsors to learn about our sponsors and go show them some love for helping us spread cannabis science education far and wide to anyone curious enough to learn. If you like Curious About Cannabis, consider checking out some of these other learning initiatives by Natural Learning Enterprises. Come on, Molly! It'll be an adventure! Phoebe called out as she followed Brother Toadstool. Brother Toadstool led Phoebe and Molly into a tunnel that went deep down into the ground. As they climbed into the tunnel, they found themselves getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Our new children's book, A Toadstool's Treasures, takes young readers on an adventure into the fun and fascinating world of fungi. Learn more and find mycology-related learning resources, games, and lesson plans for teachers and homeschooling families at toadstoolstreasures.com. And now, back to the show. These days, cannabis is big business. But it wasn't that long ago that cannabis was almost an entirely underground industry. Very few people were willing to talk about it openly, and those that did often had to disguise their identities in order to do so. Just think about Jorge Cervantes, aka George Van Patten. Hey, I'm Jorge Cervantes. I'm an author, been around for about, well, I'm entering my fifth decade of uh, this stuff here. Happy to, happy to be here, happy to help, man. 
Jorge has published over 50 books on growing cannabis between the 1970s and today. He would often don a beret, fake dreads, and dark sunglasses that he used to disguise his appearance as he taught the world how to cultivate cannabis outdoors and indoors, while giving readers and viewers behind-the-scenes looks at illicit cannabis grows during a time when cannabis was strictly prohibited in most places in the world. Say yes to your life, and when it comes to drugs and alcohol, just say no. There are some people growing up today that haven't even experienced strict cannabis prohibition in the way that we understood it just 10 years ago or so. We got one of my father's pipes, tobacco pipes, and drove around and stuffed this thing full. And four of us smoked and smoked and smoked, and finally I got high. And it was the best experience of my life at the time. You know, I was like 16, 17 years old. Yeah, 17, yeah. And my God, it was wonderful. And it wasn't anything like those guys said. I mean, I didn't go to start doing heroin. Only crimes I've done is, you know, like cannabis crimes. And that's, I don't consider that a crime. So that's how I got into it. And then in Spain, I came as a student in college. I spent a year here. I had more freedom in this country here than I did in my hometown of Ontario, Oregon. Jorge's book, Marijuana Horticulture, also known by many as the Grower's Bible, and his Ultimate Grow video series, have achieved the status of cult classics in the cannabis cultivation space, at least for anyone that was growing pre-legalization. Today, cannabis is legal in some form or another in most states in the United States, as well as Canada, Mexico, and many other countries around the world. More people are using cannabis than ever before. Chances are, if you're listening to this podcast, there's a strong possibility that you're one of these people. But what do you really know about how that little cannabis bud in your child-resistant pop-top container that you got from the dispensary got there? Every cannabis flower has a story to tell. In this episode, we're going to follow the life cycle of a cannabis plant from early evolution to seed all the way to consumption and chart out many of the fascinating bits of science that are involved along the way. And to guide our curious quest, we're going to focus on three main questions. One, what exactly is cannabis and how did it get here? Where does it really fit into the big kingdom of plants in the overall evolutionary picture? Two, how does a harvested cannabis plant turn into that perfectly manicured, aromatic, resinous bud that you might find at a dispensary? And three, how does the chemistry of cannabis change over time from the moment it's harvested to the moment it reaches the hands of a consumer? And now, without further ado, Let's get started. What exactly is cannabis? Well, obviously, cannabis is a plant. Uh, No way. Specifically, cannabis is a genus of plants. The categorical rank of genus is one rank above species. And it's always the first word that you see when you read a scientific name of a plant or animal species. The cannabis plant belongs to the Cannabaceae family, which includes up to nine or ten other genera within it, like Humulus, 
which you're probably already familiar with, especially if you're a beer drinker, because humulus lupus, or hops, is commonly used to flavor beer. Recent research examining fossilized pollen from around the world has indicated that cannabis and humulus split from the same ancient ancestor approximately 30 million years ago, really around 28 million years ago to be exact. Basically what happened is that humulus started to evolve in the more forested and really cooler and wetter areas, whereas cannabis started to evolutionarily grow out in these more arid, shrubby environments. And these plants, although they once upon a time ago were the same plant, specialized in these different environments and they developed different growth habits. Humulus started to grow like a vine. Cannabis started to grow more like a bush or a tree. And we got to the plants that we have today. Just skip, you know, a couple dozen million years. No big deal. The cannabis plant is thought to have really started its evolutionary journey somewhere around the Tibetan plateau in Asia. From there, it moved around following humans pretty much wherever we went. Traveling from Western Asia up into Eastern Europe, where there's evidence that it was heavily domesticated and produced a lot of the hemp varieties that ended up becoming popular in Europe for a very long time. It also traveled back down into other parts of Asia, west into Africa and Western Europe. It also traveled out into Japan, across the Atlantic to South America, and various Atlantic and Pacific islands, and into North America. Cannabis is thought to be one of the earliest ethnobotanical plants that humans have relied on for food, materials, medicines, and other things. The seeds have been eaten for their nutritional value for thousands and thousands of years, probably even well before humans were using cannabis for other purposes. There were reports of cannabis being used for religious and recreational purposes going back at least around 5,000 years ago. Because of its value as a multifunctional botanical, humans throughout history have stewarded the cannabis plant. And as a result of that, it's gone through a lot of changes and it's ended up everywhere. In each of the places where cannabis has traveled, it is naturalized. It doesn't actually take very long for cannabis to adapt to a new environment. Reportedly, this can happen in as few as 50 generations. Given that cannabis is generally an annual plant, that's really just like 50 years or so. In the context of evolutionary history, this is a flash. These different varieties of cannabis that have naturalized to unique geographical areas of the world are called landrace varieties. And forgive the unfortunate terminology. It is what it is. You know, at that time, I didn't really use the term landrace. It's been relatively sort of more recently that that's become part of the kind of popular jargon of, of uh, the cannabis world. This is Angus of The Real Seed Company. And he's traveled all over the world studying landrace cannabis varieties. Um, although, you know, it's a, it's, as a term, it goes way back in, in as far as the late 19th century. And it, it was applied to crops, although if you, if you look up the term landrace in the dictionary, it often refers to a Danish pig breed <laughs> known as the landrace. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, I, I don't particularly like the, 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 the term. It's got sort of... I mean, actually, the, the, the term in, in Denmark goes back to, the, you know, the 1930s, and we all know what was going on in the 1930s. And I think it has, I don't know, I don't particularly like it as a word, but we're, it seems we're stuck with it 
It's important to note that these land-race cannabis varieties are not really wild. The idea that they're, um, in some sense, sort of naturally created. If, let's say we're talking about Thai stick, you know, and, and mm -hmm. Thai and Lao and, and Cambodian land races, which there's a misconception that these plants are in some sense wild or natural, meaning that they've spontaneously been created by nature. And they are region-specific plants, right? So, of course, there's been natural selection going on, causing them to be able to flourish in the sort of humid, tropical environments that you have in, in this part of the world. But insofar as they're potent and they smell good and they have a nice effect, they, they yield well and all these kind of traits, they are the product of human beings selecting for what they regard as desirable and what they want. Land races are domesticated cannabis. That's a key misunderstanding. Now, you do have kind of parallel wild populations north of the tropics, which are seamlessly kind of related to land races because north of about 25 degrees latitude, cannabis will escape and establish spontaneous populations. You know, so anywhere north of the Ganges River in India, you'll find astonishing quantities of what you can call colloquially wild cannabis. But if we're being more precise right. in our use of language, it's really weedy cannabis. Mm -hmm. The trouble for anyone who believes that there is a thing truly wild cannabis is it's more or less, as far as botanists are concerned, it's impossible to differentiate between yeah. a true wild population and a, a weedy population. So there's evidence of domestication in seemingly all cannabis plants on the planet at this point. But this really shouldn't be that surprising, right? I mean, we don't see wild versions of many of the vegetables we eat because they've been domesticated for so long and humans have been interacting with cannabis almost as long as there's been human civilization. It's also worth noting that the commercial cannabis that you'll find in a dispensary has very little to do with these naturalized varieties, these land race varieties. Commercial cannabis is the result of intense hybridization and inbreeding that results in the types of plants that we traditionally think of with cannabis, these relatively dense buds, lots of resin, high THC, but there's a lot more to cannabis than what you see at a dispensary. But we'll have more on that in another episode. The cannabis leaf is probably one of the most well-recognized leaves on the planet, presenting a leaf structure that really resembles a hand, which is funny because in botany we refer to that as a palmate structure. So palmate, like the palm of your hand. The leaf consists of three or more leaflets that kind of resemble fingers. And each leaflet features serrated edges that kind of look like a sawtooth pattern. And cannabis leaves also have a characteristic vein pattern where each vein splits towards the outer edge of the leaf to spread to both the outer tip and the inner notch of each serration. It's pretty interesting, and if you ever have a chance to look at a cannabis leaf up close, you'll notice this. You can also notice it if you go to the Curious About Cannabis virtual campus in our botany building where you can go and uh, see an exhibit about cannabis botany. There's a 3D model of a cannabis plant in there, and the resolution of that model is actually so good, you can see this venation pattern in those leaves. So even if you can't get your hands on cannabis, you can still go to the Curious About Cannabis virtual campus and check it out. It's pretty cool. Cannabis plants are what are considered dioecious, meaning that they typically grow as either male or female plants. Cannabis produces two types of flowers, staminate flowers, which are the 
quote-unquote male flowers that produce pollen, and pistillate flowers, which are the quote-unquote female flowers that contain ovaries and produce resins containing the prized cannabinoids and terpenoids that so many people are after. However, this idea of a female cannabis plant may not be quite right, as the cannabis plant actually keeps many tricks up its sleeves, including the ability to produce male flowers and produce seeds on its own if it thinks it's in danger. In cannabis, there is no true female. This is Dr. Reggie Gaudino. He's a molecular geneticist and research scientist that has been studying cannabis for years. And his research has led him to believe that the notion of a true female cannabis plant might be a myth. So you're either a male or you're a hermaphrodite, right? And in, in that hermaphrodite spectrum, right, you can control the expression of any phenotypic characteristic, whether it be the female flower or it be the male flower, right? So, and that's why you can you can see genetic females produce flower under terms of stress because it's actually the SOS system. It's like, oh my God, I'm going to die. Let me yep. make a freaking seed, right? So, so, so in cannabis, you're either a hermaphrodite or you're a male. We've talked a bit about what cannabis is, where it came from, but how is it grown? To answer this, we're going to follow the life cycle of the plant, starting with the seed. Cannabis seeds contain several primary parts. You have the endosperm, which is like the special food that the seed uses to help the plant get its first little bit of growth going, just to produce enough root so that it can start getting nutrients from soil and other media that it might be growing in. The cannabis seed also contains cotyledons, which are the very first leaves that the plant will push out. And you may not have known this, but actually plants, when they produce seeds, they produce their very first leaves within that seed. And so the very, really, there is a miniature plant sitting in every seed. It's truly, truly fascinating. The word cotyledon means seed leaf or seed leaves. And then the final part of the cannabis seed is the seed coat which protects the cotyledons and the endosperm. When the seed coat absorbs a certain amount of water, it softens up. That water reaches the inner parts of the seed, meaning the endosperm and the cotyledons. And then life kicks into motion. This moment when the seeds crack and start to push out roots is called germination. During this process, the plant is producing all sorts of hormones to quickly build roots and shoots and true leaves so that the plant can start using energy from the sun and have a decent chance of surviving by getting nutrients out of the soil or whatever growth medium it's in. If this process takes too long, the plant can end up starving and die off before it's able to actually feed itself on its own. You have to be mindful that you know your seeds well. As plants are bred, they fall into a particular thing called a filial generation. You may have heard of F1, F2, F3 plants, that sort of thing. The F stands for filial. F1 plants tend to have stable dominant traits. F2 plants tend to contain a big mix of genetics that leads to the emergence of recessive traits and a ton of phenotypical diversity, meaning the plant's all look different, their chemical profiles are all different, there's just a lot of diversity. With enough breeding through more filial generations, it's possible to eventually get to a stabilized inbred line of plants 
that are always consistent when grown from seed. This has been done with a lot of different plants. However, this takes a lot of work, and there's a lot of debate over whether this has ever been accomplished in cannabis yet, and many people think it hasn't. Back in 2019, I spoke with a cannabis farmer that had a nightmare scenario happen to him when he bought a bad batch of cannabis seeds that weren't quite as advertised. With F1 hybrids, essentially, you've taken two things that are far apart, but have a, two, both have you know single or very few, uh, a dominant trait. Mm-hmm. And when you cross those two together in their F1 generation, they will, right, right. They will pass along their, their dominant trait to the offspring in a high frequency. Right. You'll see a nice blending of those traits exactly. that you want to tease out. Right. If you take uh, those seeds from that F1 population and you were to breed with them further, whether you've selected a new male or a new female or you have an open pollination you know, scenario where the right. males and the females get to breed, now in your F2 generation, you're going to start to see a lot of diversity in you know, plant traits that were in the DNA of those plants all along. Mm-hmm. But... Um, you know, in that first step down in the F1, uh, they didn't express all of those more recessive traits. And um, so that's essentially what happened there. And so the, the, yeah. the seeds that were sold, um, you know, they, that particular one was a lot of fraud and misrepresentation by some bad actors in particular. And also just a lack of understanding you yeah, know, of how, that, yeah. how that works um, and gets passed on. Within about a few weeks, depending on how much light the plant's getting, it's going to start producing some of the earliest signs of its sex organs, which give you a bit of insight into whether the plant's going to produce male flowers or female flowers. And remember, if you're trying to grow cannabis for resin content, then you're really interested in those female flowers. In general, cannabis plants are what are called photoperiod dependent. That means that the way they grow and develop changes based on the amount of light that they receive. When cannabis plants receive approximately 16 to 18 hours of light per day, they tend to stay in a vegetative state where they'll keep growing and accumulating biomass before developing flowers. Once a cannabis plant experiences around 12 hours of light per day, like you would expect to find in the fall seasons, the plants start to produce flowers, preparing for the end of their life cycle. When cannabis is grown indoors, these different changes in light have to be mimicked. So when cannabis plants are initially grown from seed into their immature stages, they're usually grown under a light schedule that gives them 16-18 hours of light per day. And then when a grower wants to switch the plants into the flowering phase, They just change the light schedule so that the plants are only exposed to around 12 hours of light per day. For anyone that's growing cannabis in really confined spaces, they often will start the growth of the plants under 12 hours a day lighting and not change it. This helps ensure that the plants switch into flowering as quickly as possible, although this does reduce yield. Cannabis likes a pH between 6 and 6.5 in general. This is usually a sweet spot that will unlock the availability of many different nutrients that are in the growing medium. Just because a lot of nutrients have been added to a growing medium, whether it's compost 
or fertilizer, whatever, those nutrients aren't necessarily available to the plant unless certain conditions are met. And one of the most important of these is the pH. If the pH is not right, then most of these other nutrients will not be available to your plant, even if they are there in the growing medium. Not all cannabis plants are photoperiod dependent, though. Cannabis plants that grow through their life cycle regardless of the amount of light they receive are called autoflowering cannabis plants. Autoflowering plants have become really popular. For personal home cultivators, autoflowers are a really great entry point into learning how to grow cannabis. These plants are generally smaller than traditional cannabis plants, and the person cultivating the plant doesn't have to worry about their local seasons or the amount of light that the plant receives. Larger cultivators are becoming interested in autoflowers because it can make it possible to grow cannabis in environments that are generally not so favorable. If you don't want to wait the three to six weeks that it can take to actually sex your plants by eye, there are molecular tests available that can identify with varying degrees of accuracy whether your plants are male or female presenting, or if they're likely to be sensitive to hermaphrodism. Generally, the male plants are culled from the garden pretty quickly to try to avoid pollination and seed production in the resin-producing female cannabis plants. Once these female-presenting cannabis plants begin producing flowers, they also start producing tons of cannabinoid and terpenoid-rich sticky icky resin. And as long as the plants are not pollinated, they keep producing resin until the plant prepares to reach the end of its life cycle. At this point, the resin starts changing color. It goes from being pretty clear to almost a kind of cloudy appearance, and then eventually you start to see almost an amber-looking color. When the majority of trichomes are getting cloudy or amber, that's usually when most people consider it time to harvest the flowers, allow them to dry, usually to a moisture content of around 8 to 12 percent. When the plants are being harvested, the largest leaves are usually clipped off. This helps to ensure that air can move around the drying plants better, and it helps prevent excess moisture from filling the drying space. This ultimately helps to reduce the potential of mold growth, and it expedites the drying process overall. Now, when cannabis is being harvested, I really recommend letting cannabis dry to the point of really being almost cracker dry, scary dry, to the point that you're scared that if you mishandle it, it's gonna just powder up. There's water in the air all around that material. All that material is gonna be soaking up that water, and ultimately those buds are gonna rehydrate. But of course, this is highly dependent on how you cure. There are less traditional ways, I would say, of drying and curing cannabis. There are companies out there that do freeze drying and flash curing and all sorts of other things, which personally I don't have a lot of experience with and can't really speak to. But with traditional growing, traditional drying and curing practices, usually these plants are going to absorb moisture out of the air and rehydrate. You might be surprised how much water is actually in the air around us most of the time. Even in arid places like California or Southern Oregon, 
the air can often rest at humidity levels around 35 to 50%. In humid areas like the southeastern United States, those humidity levels can be much higher, sometimes getting as high as 80-90%. So always be mindful of the moisture that's in the air, because your cannabis plants are going to want it. Now this drying process is a delicate process. If it happens too fast, with too much heat, a lot of terpenes and other volatile compounds besides water are going to get lost or they're going to get degraded and transformed. As long as the drying process happens slowly, at a low temperature, consistently, your temperatures aren't fluctuating, you're not drying, rehydrating, drying, rehydrating, that's a recipe for microbiological contamination. But as long as the drying process is consistent, slow, at a low temperature, you'll avoid losing excess terpenes and a lot of other volatile compounds, aldehydes, and all sorts of other things, and you'll still get to where you need to be. Now, like I said, there are multiple ways to dry and cure. There are all sorts of newer methods that are trying to speed up the process. You just have to be careful with that kind of stuff. Just make sure you understand it. And if you have experience doing that successfully without losing terpenes and that sort of thing, I'd love to hear about it. While the plant is drying, the chemistry starts changing. Besides the water leaving the plant material like you'd expect, aromatic compounds like monoterpenes are also leaving the plant, leaving behind heavier terpenes like sesquiterpenes. One study found that while monoterpenes dominate freshly harvested cannabis, which often have these sharp and gassy aromas, the terpene profile of the plant rapidly changes as it dries to favor sesquiterpenes like beta-caryophylline and humulene. This usually gives the plant spicier notes, uh, spicier, woody, earthier kind of notes. At the same time, the terpenes that are still present in the plant are also oxidizing and changing aroma because of the introduction of that oxygen. The plant also off-gasses other things while it's drying, like carbon dioxide, methanol, and ethylene. Ethylene at high concentrations will call it, cause it to rot really quick. This is Dr. Allison Justice, a plant scientist based out of South Carolina that has made it her mission to better understand how the cannabis plant grows, and particularly how it grows differently in different parts of the world, like in the southeastern United States versus the arid west coast where most of the cannabis in the United States is grown. And so you think about cannabis, you know, we're not wanting to keep these flowers alive like you would the, the cuttings, but you also don't want them to theoretically rot really quick. But they're also not rotting because we're drying them slow enough. But then we also looked at CO2, O2, you know, how those gases are changing. I guess one of the biggest takeaways for, for ethylene specifically was that in drying, it was producing crazy amounts. Yeah. You know, the plant was still alive. It was still wet. And as, as it gets drier, it, it, it slows down the ethylene production. But the, the amounts there at the beginning are extremely high, you know, well above avocados and, and other plants that produce yeah. a lot of ethylene. We went as far as adding more ethylene, using ethylene blockers, um, and there wasn't a ton of difference. Not a ton. I th there's some more work to be done there, but at these, you know, very high level, you know, we're still very exploratory yeah. experiments. Um, it didn't make a huge difference. Is there any concern over emissions exposure or anything once it gets kind of concentrated in these buildings? I mean, ideally you've got air exchange happening, but 
Yeah, it, it's not to a level where it would be harmful for humans. Good, okay. For sure. I think if, if you were to put uh, another plant in the room with those drying cannabis plants, struggle. you might see some funky <laughs> curling and, and things like that. Now, that would but, be, that uh, would be an human, interesting experiment to, to grow other plants where cannabis plants are drying and see what happens. Uh, that's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Once dry, the plants are due for a good bucking. Bucking is the process of removing buds off of the large stems of the plant. This can be done by hand, as is often the case for craft cannabis that's being treated more delicately, or there are also machines that have been designed to strip buds right off of the cannabis stalks, as is the case in large-scale cannabis cultivation. Once the plant has been bucked, the buds can be further trimmed to remove excess plant material before they're stored and cured. Once cannabis plants have been chopped down, dried, and allowed to cure, they're then packaged, often in glass jars or vacuum-sealed bags or mylar bags, to preserve the flower's aroma and its moisture content. But the cannabis plant is not done changing yet. As cannabis is moved from container to container and exposed to oxygen and light, chemistry starts changing again. Terpenes oxidize, forming new aromas and tastes. Cannabinoids decarboxylate a bit and transform. THCA decarboxylates to THC a little bit, which then begins transforming into delta-8 THC a little bit. Then a little bit of CBN forms. Likewise, CBDA will decarboxylate to CBD and transform to things like CBND and other derivatives. By the time a dried, cured inflorescence, which is the technical term for a group of flowers, which is really what a cannabis bud is, it's an inflorescence. Once that dried, cured inflorescence reaches a consumer, the chemistry can be substantially different than when it was harvested. This is one reason why live resin has become so popular. Live resin is an extract produced from freshly harvested cannabis plants that have not been allowed to dry and cure. Typically, the plants are cut down and immediately frozen, and then they're stored until they're ready to be extracted. Live resin is typically associated with very loud aromas and flavors, often including many more monoterpenes than would normally be found in the extracts of cured flour. And this has all led to interesting debates between passionate connoisseurs and brands over the benefits or disadvantages of live resin versus cured resin, to each their own. And just when we thought we were done, the cannabis plant is still not done changing. The way you consume cannabis affects its chemistry, and ultimately, what chemicals make it into your bloodstream. When cannabis is heated, for instance, all those cannabinoids, terpenoids, and other chemical compounds further transform into very different chemicals, some that were never present in the plant to begin with. There are hundreds of unique compounds in cannabis smoke that are not found in the cannabis flower. The way we describe it to a lot of people who, who know about a few different cannabinoids is, you know, THC partially degrades to CBN when smoked, right? Um, but again, that's happening with almost every other compound. So like CBD converts to CBND, but also CBD can convert to CBE. CBC can convert to CBL. You have this kind of really unique suite of compounds that are produced during uh, the heating process. My name is Dr. Riley Kirk. I am a natural product chemist. 
You know, as kind of we're talking about before, some of what we believe in is the unknown. There are some unknowns. Right. And uh, we don't believe that's a bad thing because I take so many different natural products. I drink so many different teas and I can guarantee you we don't know all the compounds in those teas and in these tinctures. But all that chemistry of the cannabis plant and its constituents is only one piece of this puzzle when we're trying to understand how cannabis and cannabis-derived products affect the body. And the other piece of the puzzle is you. Your unique body, your unique mind, and the unique ways in which your body processes food, drugs, and other compounds is a tremendous piece of this puzzle that often gets ignored when people are trying to understand what cannabis products they should be using. Beyond your basic physiology that you bring to the table, there's also your psychology, which I think people often lose sight of, even if they're thinking about physiology. The set and setting in which you consume cannabis will profoundly affect your experience. Your intention while consuming cannabis will affect your experience. Consuming when you're upset versus when you're happy is going to yield different experiences. Cannabis affects everyone differently for a host of reasons, and no one really understands all the variables involved. No one can predict how cannabis is going to affect you. While there are all sorts of genetic tests, organoleptic trainings, and special recipes and books and all sorts of things out there, claiming that they can help you find what will work perfectly for you, at the end of the day, you are the only one that can know what works best for you. And you gain that understanding through experience and careful observation and reflection about your experiences. If you want to learn more about how cannabis affects the body in a more detailed way, I recommend checking out our episodes on the endocannabinoid system and the endocannabinoidome, where we really break down a lot of the nuances around what cannabinoids do once they get in your body. Now let's take a second to review what we've learned. First, Cannabis is a plant with a rich evolutionary history. Its closest ancestor is the hops plant, Humulus lupus, which shared an ancient ancestor with cannabis almost 30 million years ago. Beyond that, there are at least nine or 10 other relatives of cannabis that also belong in the Cannabaceae family. Cannabis has been used throughout history for thousands and thousands of years for many different uses. and is most commonly used as fiber, food, and medicine. It is the pistillate flowers of the cannabis plant that produce cannabinoid and terpene-rich resins. This is what we call female flowers, pistillate flowers. There are no actual true female cannabis plants though, as they all seem to have the ability to produce male flowers under stress. Cannabis plants generally show their sex within three to six weeks of growth, depending on lighting conditions and the genetics of the plant itself. This process can sometimes be expedited by limiting light to only 12 hours a day. And sometimes this process might go faster if you're growing something like an autoflower that's not photodependent. Male cannabis plants are generally kept separate from resin producing female plants to avoid pollination and seed production or fertilization. The chemistry of a cannabis flower changes considerably from the moment it's harvested to the moment it is consumed. Fresh cannabis flower is rich in monoterpenes, which quickly volatilize during the drying process, more so than heavier terpenes like sesquiterpenes. As cannabis dries, the cannabinoids and terpenes in the resin begin to transform 
as they're exposed to air, light, and heat. When cannabis is curing, it releases a variety of volatile organic compounds that influence the way cannabinoids and terpenes transform. After the flower is packaged and sold to a consumer, another chemical transformation takes place when the flower is heated, producing hundreds of chemicals that were not present in the flower before it was heated. Once consumed, each person's body processes cannabis a little differently, sometimes leading to very different experiences person to person. There are no tests, techniques, or recipes that will automatically connect you with the perfect cannabis product or chemical profile for your specific need. You know yourself better than anyone, and only you have access to the physiological and psychological variables that also influence how you experience cannabis beyond the chemistry of the product itself. So be careful getting too caught up in data chasing and certificates of analysis. Sometimes, all you need to do to find the best cannabis for you is to listen to you. To be mindful, to listen to what your body's telling you when you consume something, and to pay close attention so that you recognize the aromas and characteristics of cannabis products that resonate best with your body and your physiology, your psychology. And finally, be mindful of your set and setting when you consume cannabis and recognize that even when you have these other two variables, your physiology and the chemical profile of the cannabis plant figured out, your set and setting can always still change your experience dramatically. So be mindful. That's our show for today. I'm Jason Wilson with Curious About Cannabis, asking you to stay curious and take it easy. Thanks so much for tuning in. Bye-bye. You know, where it's it's dead. You've you've cut it. It's not going to grow back. But <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it it's still doing plant things. Yeah. You know, it's it's still um, respiring, throwing out moisture. It, it, you know, it's still alive. We have issues with things like feminization rates. What does this really mean? Yeah. Does a feminization rate really tell you anything about the tendency to hermaphrodite? You know, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So. Um, I think that's a huge problem in the industry, um, and, I, and I think until the industry gets a, a test for hermaphrodism, that's yeah. not, not likely to go away anytime soon. And, and that itself is a, a hugely difficult test to, to go after because there are so many genes involved in the stress response that could feed into the pathway to make it seed, right? So, so is it a drought stress? And then it's going to have its pathway in. Is it, is it a predator stress, right? Is it a, a, Thanks so much to all of the people that donated their time and energy to speak with me to contribute to content for this and other shows on the Curious About Cannabis podcast. You can listen to full-length, behind-the-scenes conversations with everyone featured in this and every other Curious About Cannabis feature episode. Just check out the show notes for this episode at cacpodcast.com episodes and find links to the associated behind-the-scenes interviews there. And if you're curious about cannabis, visit curiousaboutcannabis.net and let's learn together.
work untiringly so that our children are obliged to learn the truth. Because it is only through knowledge that we can safely protect them.